Hello and welcome to Econoday Unplugged. It's Wednesday, the 4th of September, 2019. Mark Pender is stateside. Brian Jackson joins us from Sydney. And I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Well, some of us have been away on our summer holes for the last few weeks, but many of the key issues impacting financial markets before we went would seem to be at least as important now. Amongst those are US-China trade talks, the global economic slowdown and associated expectations for easier central bank policies, and the battle between the US for US monetary policy between the White House and the Fed standout. And with regards to Brexit, whether or not the end game is finally in sight after this week's UK political developments, uh, well, I guess Parliament over here will never be quite the same again. But let's start with Brian. Uh, Brian, last time you were on then, uh, you were talking about a clear downside bars to official interest rates in your region. Does that still apply? Oh, yes, it's, it's still very much in place. I mean, they're not... Um cutting rates at every opportunity. Uh, but, you know, if, if you look at the, uh, the the data that's coming in and the, and the rhetoric that's still coming from uh, central bankers in, in this part of the world, uh, it's still uh, very much uh, biased towards further policy easing, I think, over the, the next few months from um, some of those key central banks. You know, if you look at the Reserve Bank of India, they uh, cut rates by a sort of strange amount, 35 basis points last month. Um, Can I ask why? What? Why do you think that was? It says you say it's a strange amount. Why thirty-five basis points? I don't Any know. Clues? I don't know. Um, they they didn't really explain it uh, in the um, in the statement that came with the decision. Um, perhaps it was just perhaps to uh, yeah go a little bit more than what people were expecting to provide a bit mm-hmm. of a boost to confidence. I don't know, but um, yeah, that followed uh, two more standard moves of twenty-five basis points already. So yeah, again, the bias is clear. But you you look at the the Indian uh, numbers over the last sort of six months or so, and and you can see why that is the that is the case. Um, in Australia, we had the Reserve Bank of Australia this week uh, keeping rates on hold. That was uh, in line with expectations. So they've kept rates on hold now for two months in a row after cutting them for two months uh, consecutively. But again, I think uh, you know the, the markets are still pricing in a, a strong chance of another move going forward. We had GDP numbers out after the RBA decision uh, showing a drop in in the year-on-year growth rate to its lowest level in about 10 years. Uh, Some of the other uh, sort of monthly numbers also uh, showing signs of of weakness in parts of the economy as well. So there they're they're looking at, um, again, the labour market and how that's impacting on inflation pressures. And they see... um, yeah, you know, still some scope for the unemployment uh-huh. rate to come down. Uh, until you do see that, I think, yeah, again, the, the, there'll still be some uh, bias towards easing. With re- with the regards to that, I mean, so your RBA is at record levels now, yeah, Re- record lows. Yeah. What chance do you think there might be of you know you, you know the old Keynesian thing? You can you, know, you get to the stage the interest rates are so long that you're pushing on a piece of string. Do you think they're considering introducing some form of quantitative easing? You know, along the lights that the Fed has, and obviously the you know the ECB and the Bank of England. Yeah, we're we're still a way off that. You know, you know they can still go another two or three times before you know that would have to really start seriously being considered. So it's not something that they've had to do. Um, you know, during all these last sort of five to ten years when it's been so prevalent by other central banks. So I think they're hoping that they won't have to get to that stage. But uh, you know, they have seen it done elsewhere, and so they sort of know the playbook. But, um, yeah, we're still a little bit away from there. Okay. And I've got to ask you about Bank of Japan. Um, 
I suppose there's talk now that you know, are they losing control of the yield curve, given where you've got this the long end of curve, these you know, 10-year JGBs now, you know, getting well, getting towards a, the minus 0.3% type area. So, I mean, is it the case that you know, they're going to have to change policy or you know, the credibility of their stance in terms of targeting the yield curve just doesn't hold water anymore? Well, I mean, bear in mind that we've been on hold for, for the policy settings for, what is it, three or four years now. So, you know, during that time, there have been, uh, you know, various developments and various moves in asset prices. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the officials at the BRJ have just kept the course. Uh, so they have uh, displayed that they're quite prepared just to, to keep on going uh, and keep on saying that they're prepared to do more if they feel the need to. But never actually, uh, you know, following through with that. You know, the, the rhetoric still coming from um, the, the Bank of Japan is that they expect, you know, this inflation target gradually to be met. They keep on put it, pushing it back, of course, but, you know, they, they think that uh, things are still on target and that, um, you know, there's no need to to, uh, to move. You, you do sort of see a few little uh, tweaks to the rhetoric, uh, just saying that, uh, you know, they, they could move more quickly if if they do see a uh, a need to in the data, but you know, I'm not holding my breath that there's going to be any big changes in policy settings. Brian, this is Mark. What would they do, considering they're it's uh, they already call their policy exceptionally accommodative? Where would they go? Well, exactly. I I, I think that's part of the reason why they're, they're not doing too much more. They're, they've already got extraordinary measures in place, and they're just you know I, I think thinking that they've done all they really can on the monetary policy side and that, um, you know, I guess you, you do hear them talking about uh, more moves on the fiscal policy side. So perhaps that's really the only uh, option that we've got at the moment. Interesting. Must say, in terms of fiscal stuff, there's more and that, more and more that sort of cool link coming out of Europe as well. Um, before we start, perhaps you know, round up in your bit, I must ask you about Hong Kong and uh, the rioting out there. A um, couple of things. Really. Has it been unsettling for regional markets, do you think, or is it just a domestic problem? And did you think that your know, Carrie Lan's decision to withdraw the um, extradition bill, that's going to allow things to return to normal, or has there been sort of more permanent damage to um, sentiment out there? Oh, I mean, there's definitely been a broader regional uh, impact on sentiment and, um, you know, and also I, I think you see a little bit of it in, in some of the data, just obviously Hong Kong is such an important part of, of uh, you know, the regional trading uh -huh. um, uh, operations. In terms of what's going to happen now after this decision by Carrie Lam, uh, you know, yeah, hopefully it will stabilise things. Uh, we obviously saw a big jump in the uh, Hang Seng yesterday after uh, reports came that this was going to happen, and these reports were confirmed after the close of trading. What I found interesting was, you know, this announcement came just a, a few hours, up, basically after the PMI survey numbers just showed com complete, uh, you know, collapse in activity and sentiment in the Hong Kong economy. So, you know, I do wonder whether that last bit of economic news might have uh, really weighed into, um, you know, the uh, the decision to scrap this uh, this uh, term uh, this extradition bill. We've seen, um, you know, the Hong Kong economy under a lot of pressure for 18 months, really, uh, partly uh, due to the U.S.-China trade tensions, obviously, over the last uh, yeah, year sure. or so. But just in the last two months, uh, you know, that PMI uh, index just fell from, you know, just under 50 to around 40. 
So a huge drop, um, and that would have had to have been, uh, you know, very concerning for the leadership there. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens, whether that does placate the protesters and uh, sort of stabilise things. I have a question on the PMI. Uh, who make up the, the sample now? Is this uh, – uh, there? Hong Kong must not be a manufacturing centre, right? It, it's a financial centre. Um, so uh, what kind of companies are in that PMI? Yeah, I mean, it's – some of the other PMIs, they, they have a separate manufacturing and a services sector one. This is a, a whole economy one. Uh, yeah, there is definitely still some manufacturing in Hong Kong, but it would be, yeah, largely uh, financial services uh, and, and other sort of trading uh, operations. Um, you know, it's, it's a broad-based uh, survey for the whole Hong Kong economy, uh, but, yeah, a mix of, of manufacturing and services. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for that. Um, continuing our global trundle around then. Mr. Pender, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. since our last podcast, has anything really changed your side of the pond? And I guess in particular, is the Fed still seen cutting again later this month? And I suppose that matter. If so, do you think it should? Do I think it should? Oh, well, do you, think it, do you well, think it will first and then do you think it should? Let's get the question. Will they or won't they first? I think they, I think they will. And I think it, they have their window open now uh, because of the economic data has uh, softened significantly. And I really I want to point uh, everyone's attention to the ISM manufacturing index. It's just a single sample. The sample's been around, however, for ne- for nearly a hundred years, and it goes on its own as a indicator of its own for manufacturing, even though it doesn't move. Uh, all, all that strongly with the actual definitive data, which usually trails by a few weeks, um, but it has a it has its own momentum and it's moved to forty nine point one. Was very sudden. I mean, the Econoday uh, panel. Uh, this is one of the most uh, uh, read um, indicators in U.S. Uh, in the U.S. calendar. Uh, it rivals the employment report, uh, and um, none of the sample. Uh, we're really willing to go low. Uh, we had a 50.5, uh, 50 being break even. That was the lowest uh, uh, of the uh, of the 20 uh, panel, and uh, uh, and that was low. Uh, the the consensus was 51.3. It came in at 49.1, and um, it showed deterioration everywhere. Actually, it was because of. Uh, Supplier deliveries is, a, is one of the uh, components of the index. It has five, it's a composite of five uh, index of, of, of the components. And supplier deliveries is very tricky. And they improved a great deal, but it was still a little bit slower than it was the month before. So that actually uh, was an indication, as far as the composite goes, of strength, which gave, which gave it a little strength, the 49.1. If it wasn't for supplier deliveries, which is like a, a – a, a touchy one anyway. Um, the other indexes are all 47, 46, 45, 43. We're talking like uh, uh, Brian was talking about Hong Kong, like a shocking. All of a sudden, we uh, the U.S. numbers, these PMI numbers, have held up better than the global ones. They haven't broken into the 40s yet, and this broke into 40s in spectacular fashion. And it is by far the most important in the closely read one. And it's actually. Uh, 
uh, uh, you know, it's companies themselves, corporations use the ISM index as part of their their own forecast and part of their explanation to their shareholders. So it goes. It, it, this is a very deeply interwoven index when it comes to the U.S. economic outlook, and I think that is a very significant um, uh, move. And I think that that really guarantees, I think, a 25 basis point hike. I think now there, there could be a talk of a 50 basis point hike. W- what I think that they uh, should do, um, well, I guess I've just been the whole year with the uh, President Trump uh, uh, pressuring the uh, central bank uh, has made me uh, uh, think that maybe uh, protecting its own integrity would be the most important thing that it could do for long-term U.S. financial uh, stability. But you know, I don't really want to. You know, I think that this that this is a theoretical argument. I think when it comes down to the actual economics now, they've had they raised rates last year. They have room to go down. I think they're going to start moving down and. Especially because, if nothing else, the, the unsaid, the things that they don't say, they don't talk about currency ever, the dollar. But that's a very important building factor. The euro has been sliding, the pound has been sliding, and uh, uh, the more uh, this will pressure, will, will keep imported inflation down, and will make it harder to get their inflation goal, and uh, will also raise the price of, of exports, which are already uh, sinking in the U.S. So they really can't afford the, the unsaid dollar policy. Uh, you know, it's the elephant in the room in these meetings. And uh, unlike other central banks, this is like f- foreboding. You can't talk about it. Um, and so it's a, it, it's a very odd mix. Uh, it's like, you know, signals, smoke signals and those kinds of things which you have to read between the lines. Into, you know, in the modern informational world, I'm not sure that, that how long that this can go on, but it's still going on. Right. In terms of sort of informational signals, going back to, say, talking about this um, ISM manufacturing report, what, um, obviously the, you know, the current index was below 50. What, what are the sort of you know, the forward looking components like you know, new orders and export mm-hmm. orders? What, what were mm-hmm. they saying? Well, new orders came in uh, uh, at 40, at 47.2 uh, below 50. That means that on the um, edges of the sample, there were more people who said that uh, their order books were uh, lower at, um, in, at let's, let's say, mid-month August versus mid-month July. So uh, then they were, that, that said that they were higher. That's what moves this diffusion index below uh, 50. It can be some diffusion indexes use zero. Uh, this tradition, the PMIs have traditionally used the number 50. Uh, new export orders. We're down at 43.3. So there's the real telling. That's right. the real teller right there that uh, um, we're getting uh, this biting now. And this was before the um, tariff hikes took effect uh, just over this last weekend. So the next sample, uh, it's hard to imagine that that's going to be improving very much at all. Also, backlog orders were also uh, in contraction at 47.5. The whole thing, it, these numbers, like I said, if it wasn't for supplier deliveries, I think it was, it was just barely over 50, 51.5. And that had come down, like I like I had tried to explain, but that still lifted the that 49.1 isn't really as strong as that. Employment was at 47.4. That's one of the uh, five um, components of the report. Uh, and, the, you know, these are purchasers at the at, – you know, the ISM says it has a balanced sample. It probably does between small companies and large companies. But it's, uh, you know, part of the per- the purchasing uh, professions uh, uh, tradition to participate 
um, in, in a grand scale, uh, as far as the size of some of these purchasers who are in this sample, very, you know, top leading companies and, and multiple purchasers at top leading com- uh, uh, companies can be involved because a, a big company, uh, let's say General Electric or something, has purchases a lot of things. So in, yeah, sure. in any case, this is uh, – it's a, a directional signal. It's not going to really give you uh, – uh, uh, too much of a, a, a firm indicator on you know the, the size or the or the magnitude of the movements, but it's definitely showing that things are going down. And in a sense, it is a confidence survey too, because uh, in these surveys you don't know if the respondent is actually looking at his order books, and some of them do, and they're advised to do so, but no one's checking. So, and that's why it's a, it's a month to month comparison. Not a year ago comparison because you can't remember a year ago, but you can remember n- next month. So it's you have to take these, realize that these are have a sentiment uh, element to them, and and now that it, this is broken down. And the last time it was this low was before President Trump was elected. So we've seen the whole curve, and this curve you can you can you can see it in other economic data too, as well as the sentiment. It starts to go up. Uh, a couple of years ago, it peaks out, and, and now it's been coming down, and we're, we're back at the zero line. Okay, well, I suppose if anything, it's going to set sen- affect sentiment near term. Of course, it's going to be the employment report. So perhaps before you uh, round up, um, what's expected to come out on Friday? Okay, let me see here. The Econoday consensus right now is 160,000. It may change. We're getting ADP tomorrow, uh, and that's uh, uh, closely watched, even though its correlation is in question. Uh but a big surprise there could bring this up or down a little bit. Uh, the unemployment rate is expected to hold steady at 3.7. Manufacturing, which despite the troubles in the data, uh, ha- has been adding uh, payroll jobs and, and another 8,000, which is a, a, not a bad monthly uh, gain, is expected. Um, these are all real solid. I mean, these are, uh, these are actually kind of perfect. They're not too hot. Right, they're sustainable, so it's really a rich pocket right where you want it. Uh, average hourly earnings had been going up. We did see core CPI go up, but when it came down to the uh, PCE price core, it it didn't show up uh, any uh, inflationary pressures, and it, we might get a little bit on that, but I don't think that that's a concern right now, given the breakdown that we're seeing uh, in the global economy and now as expressed in the ISM. Okay, excellent. Tar muchly for that. Okay, we move back to sort of my part of the world with Europe then. Um, the Eurozone, I think in some ways we can dismiss quickly, but not too much new to say about that uh, since we last spoke. Third quarter growth then shaping up uh, probably around about a sluggish 0.2% quarter on quarter rate. So that would be in line with the second quarter number. Nothing too much to write home about there. Underlying inflation still as sticky as ever, close to the 1% mark, or roughly what, about half or so what it should be. So financial markets then in Europe still firmly focused upon next Thursday or September the 12th for the next ECB stimulus package. Of note, though, it may be worth noting that um, there have been some, I guess, relatively, well, certainly less accommodative comments coming out of some of the more hawkish council members, notably those from the Bundesbank, uh, the central banks of the Netherlands and Austria. So very much at the more hawkish end of the central bank spectrum about perhaps, you know, just don't expect too much once 
once we actually get to that meeting. And so to that extent, there's at least a chance at this stage that financial markets may be getting a little bit carried away with their expectations of what might happen next week. But certainly, if we don't see some kind of fairly significant easing package, and I do suspect it will be a cut in rates and more QE, then um, European financial markets will be very disappointed. Um, which takes us to the UK and inevitably Brexit. One reason I must have wanted to do this last is because there are some votes taking place in the UK House of Commons as we record this. Uh, but in a nutshell, what's going on over here then? Um, earlier today, so this is Wednesday, the what, 4th of September, Parliament took the first steps to pass legislation that would force Prime Minister Johnson to ask for yet another Brexit extension. This one is timetabled through to the 31st of July, for, no, 31st of January uh, 2020. Now, of course, that's something that the Prime Minister is refusing point blank to do. Um, and this, this um, extension would happen unless a new withdrawal deal has been approved or indeed Parliament has voted in favour of leaving without any deal by the 19th of October and there's extremely no chance of that happening. Also of note, um, if Johnson is forced to go and ask for an extension and the EU Council actually propose um, a delay of to a different date, perhaps you know, they want a six-month extension or something like that, the PM would have to accept it as part of this legislation within two days unless that extension has been rejected by the House of Commons. Now, in return, Prime Minister Johnson is currently proposing that there should be an early UK general election and the House of Commons should be voting on that within I'll guess half an hour to an hour or so. He's doing that with a view to try and get some kind of mandate so that he can go to the EU and basically say, well, look, yeah, I can do whatever I want now in terms of a deal or a no deal. I want a deal, but if you won't give me one, then that's it. The UK is leaving regardless at the end of October as per previously agreed. Now, for Johnson to do that, to actually call an early general election, which he might well not win anyway, he has to get a two-thirds majority majority of parliament and parliament being parliament at the moment is not by the looks of it is not prepared to do that indeed the opposition parties as things currently stand are suggesting that although at the end of the day you'd think any opposition party would want a crack at having a general election and the chance to take over number 10 downing street they're saying that they're not prepared to actually back the idea of an early general election unless until such time as johnson has actually gone across and asked for eu for an extension extension to the Brexit deadline. The concern is that if Johnson were to get an agreement to hold an early general election, let's say for the 15th of October, which is currently the touted date, once all that's been agreed and gone through Parliament, he could actually choose to defer that date until, let's say, November, which would mean Parliament would be in recess before the election could actually take place, which, of course, would mean by default, the UK would leave the European Union under the current legislation. So yeah, there's but, an all, but they're, yeah, but they're, go but they're not going to let that happen, right? Um, who's not let that happen? That, well, that, certainly as far as far as the opposition parties is concerned. Well, both the Tories who don't want a, a hard breakfast, a, a breakfast, a Brexit, or the uh, or Labour or uh, who doesn't want a hard Brexit. Well, I mean, it's difficult to say. I mean, the whole issue of this, of course, is we're not talking about you know the voting are going along party lines, are going across party lines. So as things currently stand, there's still a majority in Parliament as of well today's vote, um, the majority of about what if I get it right, 21, I think it was, um, in favour of uh, in favour of not allowing 
president uh, not allowing boris johnson to get away without extending the brexit deadline um through to the what the, the end of january um now it's the issue, though, is whether or not he can actually in some shape or form be able to get through the idea of holding a general election, which, of course, he might win you know, before this um, October 31st date, the current Brexit deadline date. And if he were to actually win that, then all, with a parliamentary majority, then all you would have to do is to overthrow the legislation going through now and simply say, well, that's it. You know, we don't have to worry about extending the Brexit deadline. We're going to end, come out on the 31st of October and that's it. But no, I think you're right. The way things are shaping up at the moment, I think what it is safe to say is that there will be a UK general election probably within the next couple of months or so. Um, it may be not to October the 15th if the government can get its way, but that's looking unlikely. Otherwise, it could well be perhaps in November time or something like that. Because as UK Parliament currently stands, it simply doesn't function in terms of what it's supposed to be doing. Jeremy, so, can, can, I, yeah. I have a question. With, with, with a general election, sorry, with, with a general election, I mean, you said that he, he might win, he might not win. I mean, where would you see the balance of probabilities? Good question. The honest answer to that is I don't know. I mean, if you believe the opinion polls, then it would seem that the Tory parties at the moment, so the ruling party over here, has probably something like an eight percentage point lead. The difficulty, though, is trying to factor in what some of the smaller parties are going to do. For example, if there is the typical UK election is between the Conservatives and Labour. Going into this election, the Conservative Party now would go would go in on a Brexit ticket. So i.e. Johnson's current current stance of we will leave the European Union at the end of October. The Labour Party looks as if they'll be going on the ticket of probably wanting to hold a second referendum. Um, well, it's oh, not. Uh, well, I have yeah. a question, Jeremy. Doesn't the a second referendum, but isn't this to allow a, an, elect, an early election before the deadline, isn't that a de facto second referendum? Doesn't that actually, <laughs> even before the vote, doesn't that uh, disavow the, re the referendum three well, years ago? Only, only, well, if, if we have a second referendum, what comes out of that will obviously be the, the new result. But in terms of using the a potential general election as a kind of a, you know, if, if you like, a pseudo second referendum, it's not so easy because although, as I mentioned, you know, the Conservative Party ticket would probably be we're going to leave at the end of um, October. Uh, within the Conservative Party itself, yes, there's a majority to, to, to leave by the end of October, but there's not a majority which wants to leave without some, some kind of a trade deal. And this is where it all gets very messy. So it's not clear how folks would vote. Would they be prepared to vote for the Conservatives if their view is it's just going to be a hard deal? Or would they actually want to see some kind of a trade deal? Because I think a lot of the opinion polls at the moment suggest that, and these, again, they're just opinion polls, but the general consensus appears to be that UK, you know, public, the UK public are happy enough to leave the European Union, but they want to do so with a trade deal, not without one. And this is where trying to fathom out exactly what each party is going to stand for is quite tricky. Um, can, I'd like. Can I ask about uh, Nigel Farage? Now he got the most votes uh, just a few months back, right? He dwarfed what the Tories got, 
And I'm so pleased, are, is I'm, he, I'm, ple- I'm is, pleased you asked. I'm pleased you asked that because this is another reason why Johnson has to be careful about calling an election because it may be the case he goes in on some kind of Brexit ticket. But at the end of the day, you know, the real hard, strong get out of the EU regardless of deal, no deal um, party is Nigel Farage's UKIP. Now, his, if his party starts taking votes away the Conservatives, then it's possible that might let the Labour Party in, perhaps, you know, in tandem with the Liberal Democrats or something like that. So in going back to, you know, Brown's question, who's likely to win? Really, at this stage, it's almost impossible to say because you're not simply looking at down party lines, you're looking across party lines. And it's very hard, really, to determine exactly how the general elections, you know, how the general population here would actually vote. Um, so, um, I guess we will get back to economics here at the moment. Um, what we can say, which is worth pointing out, is the pound's had a fairly torrid time. However, since we've had Parliament's doing its best to, to try and make sure we don't get a no-deal Brexit, the pound's rallied. So I think what you can still say in terms of the way financial markets here will react, if it looks like um, there's going to be... Um, some kind of extension to Brexit, be it to the end of January next year as current you know, proposed legislation wants or beyond that or whatever, that would be taken well by Sterling and we should see a rally coming through there. Um, if, if for whatever reason it looks like nothing's going to happen in the UK, which is still you know, the default position, the UK leaves the European Union at the end of October this year, then the pound could be in still for a, a significant hit. So I think... Uh, yeah. To get back to economics now, I have a question. The ISM report, for instance, has a lot of detail, including uh, commodities and short supply. And our uh, food uh, uh, products, our uh, pharmaceutical products, are, is there any indication that in, in any possible UK reports are, are, that cover such things uh, that uh, anything is, is falling in short supply? As things currently stand, I think it's safe to say no. And this goes back to, I think, you'll be discussed on the podcast before, this sort of, you know, this weird profile. We've had very volatile profile to UK GDP. You know, when we go back to the original Brexit date for the end of March this year, we saw a big boost to GDP coming through as companies started stockpiling in anticipation of Brexit. Then when the Brexit date got delayed until the 31st of October, we saw a lot of that stockpiling being unwound in the second quarter. As of We've only got limited information so far on the third quarter, but it does again look as if uh, not so much on the input side because I think companies are still very nervous about the outlook for the UK economy. But in terms of finished um, product um, stock building, it's certainly started to move up again. So I think at this stage, what what we're seeing is it's not a problem in terms of companies are looking to anticipate you know some kind of Brexit at the end of October. But beyond that, yes, I mean there are plenty of scare stories about whether or not there will be a problem with food. Supplies and everything right. else. What, what, what very, about, what, very least, what about or at the very least about, prices will go up? What about your kitchen cabinets? Are they filling up? Are you <laughs> looking taking double looks at things in the supermarket? Well, I mean, I'm, I have complete and utter faith in my wife, who might or might not bother listening to this, I don't know. Um, but if you do, dear, just keep shopping and don't forget, you know, when you can buy one, get one free. That, that's, that's as good as we're going to get probably over the next year or so. Um, 
Right. Um, is there anything else we should be saying, having prattled on about this? All I would just say this last thing of this Brexit is, is going to go on for some while. My final comment on it is do not forget that all that's happening at the moment is the talk about the withdrawal treaty. Any kind of you know trade deal beyond that, what they call this political protocol, is still going to be up for discussion thereafter. So potentially Brexit could be rumbling on for a long time, whether it happens or not. Um, oh. Oh, no, I know. I knew I'd choose you. So to get rid of Brexit, I will just mention we did have a Bank of Canada meeting today, earlier today. No change in their benchmark refi rate at 1.75% there. Uh, overnight rate, I should say, at 1.75% as expected. And to finish on a bright note, Canada's actually doing pretty well at the moment. Uh, that second quarter GDP was up at, what, a 3.7% uh, annualised rate in the second quarter. So doing an awful lot better than we've got coming out of Europe and really, you know, not doing badly compared to the U.S. either. Their, their trade, uh, but but their tra- back in Canada, just looking at those numbers, they're actually their their trade is slowing like everyone else's. Uh, oh, it is. So, Very open to it as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, make the most of it while you can. Okay, anyone for anything else before we wrap this up? Good. Okay, then um, let's call it a, a, a day there then. On behalf of Mark, Brian and myself, thanks as always for listening. Uh, the podcast uh, will be back again next week. And remember, you can always keep up to date with the key market moving data and events in the Conor Day's global economic calendar. Bye for now.